Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is going to be a fun Tartan Talk conversation. Joining us are our two friends, Jeff Brower and Nathan Crace. Jeff was a longtime columnist for golf course industry, and Nathan has also contributed articles to our pages. But they're going to be discussing a different writing project. What went into writing and editing the recently released Designs on a Better Golf Course, Practical Answers to Common Questions for Green Committees from the American Society of Golf Course Architects Foundation. The book is excellent. It's highly recommended for everybody that works in the golf industry. It's designed to inform the final decision makers at your facilities about technical topics. And Jeff and Nathan and Greg Muirhead and John Sanford and the others involved in the book do it in a witty way, in a way that's easily digestible. Before we get going, discussing the book and some of the concepts that are in the book, uh, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting the podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports the efforts of many groups in the industry, including golf course superintendents. And speaking of golf course superintendents, they can certainly benefit from reading this book. Well, Jeff and Nathan, it's awesome to have you both back on the podcast you're both repeat guests and deservedly so uh, congratulations to the both of you and everyone else that played a part in this awesome book and let's get this one out of the way first jeff who dropped the line there are now more grass varieties available than a colorado pot shop into the section about turf selection that's just brilliant so yeah you like that yes and i'm not even into uh, i'm I not wrote, even into I that industry <laughs> Then I wrote that one. If you didn't like it, Nathan would have written it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then how about this one? More blends than a trendy coffee shop. Well, I'll plead guilty again. Uh, Nathan's job was actually to hold me in check on those kind of things. So I think that was one of the areas he fell down a little bit, Nathan. I was hoping you'd hold me back better. <laughs> well, I will say this. I, I think if you look at writing styles and just kind of go back over the years, I think maybe Jeff and I share a little bit of the same brain, so I didn't want to uh, didn't want to take out too much of the creativity because one of the great things about the way Jeff writes is it's relatable and it's something that anyone you, it doesn't get too technical. So that anyone in the golf industry, whether you're an owner or a, a green committee member or a golf professional, anyone who has any kind of say so, they can sit down and read that. You don't have to be a superintendent to have technical knowledge to understand what he's talking about. And Jeff, how challenging is that sometimes to write about technical information and do it in a way that people that don't have the technical background uh, are able to understand? Well, as you know, Guy, you know, I wrote the column for your publication for 14 years on architecture and renovation, and you know that really taught me a lot. Um, I've always been of the opinion if you read most non-writers, and of course I am one. I know Nathan's done some more writing, but uh, you know, there's a lot of in order that you know. The here to there, you know, there to fours, those kind of things. And my father, of course, I turned turn out later, and he didn't actually say this first, but he always said if you couldn't write your idea down on the back of an envelope, uh, either it wasn't a good idea or you didn't understand it well enough. And uh, I've always tried to be just really brief and direct and, and believe if you have one idea, you should be able to explain what you're talking about. So that kind of information from my father sort of guided the, the way I write. Were there any back-of-the-envelope lines that didn't make the book, Jeff? Yeah, there were a few, but uh, maybe volume two. Who knows? <laughs> Another question, what's a trendy coffee shop? Well, 
uh, I think we're we're in the post Starbucks phase. Seems like you got one opening up, uh, you know, on every corner these days. Some more of the local shops. Of course, in the pandemic, I've been trying to focus on the local business owners more than you know the national chain. So, Nathan, any uh, trendy coffee shops in Mississippi? Um, no, we probably, you know, we our Starbucks to population ratio is probably one of the lower ones in this state and uh, unless you drop in at one in a target i think there's by law there's one required in every target in the state yeah well okay back back to the book jeff how long has a book like this been in the works well i've always written a lot of things i had a series on cyber golf many years ago and my master plan reports tend to be a little more verbose uh, in explaining what i'm trying to think or what the hell am i trying to think in some cases and anyway, so I, you know, knowing that I had the material in the bank, as it were, from the, the columns that I wrote, you know, for golf course industry, uh, a few years back at the golf industry show, I just happened to mention, you know, that why hasn't there ever been a book, you know, called you know the Greens Committee Guide to Golf Course Architecture? And you know, there are a couple architects sitting around there, and all every one of them's jaws sort of dropped and says, "Yeah, that's you know, that's that's true. Why hasn't there been something like that?" About two years ago, they decided it was a good idea. Then it, it took a while to, uh, you know, to get it through the brain trust. And then, of course, it probably took a year to, to write with the, the committee. Like, Nathan was on it. Um, Greg Muirhead from Reese Jones was on there. Uh, John Sanford. And I think the idea was to get make sure we had a broad cross-section of architects. Uh, if I was writing it under my own name from you know, for golf course industry, I might put in, you know, a very specific thing. Uh, but, you know, we had to run it by these guys. And, you know, and they were did a great job of saying, you know, I don't quite do it that way or I'm not quite sure that's right. I mean, there was probably not a point in the book that wasn't reviewed by one or all of the committee. Uh, so we're, we feel pretty good about the information that's, that's in there after a couple of years of work. Nathan, how often do you receive an opportunity to collaborate with your fellow ASGCA members like this? On something to write? Anything, um, writing, project. I mean, do you. Do yeah, you, right, yeah, writing not very often, um, which, you know, this was a lot of fun because, as Jeff alluded to, with Greg and John being involved and, and with, you know, members of uh, from the home office being involved as well, but it was, it was interesting to see that, you know, he would. Jeff would fire something out, send it to us. We'd look at it, and it's not that we were nitpicking, but we were trying to collaborate and add ideas to it. and And it was really interesting to see just the expertise from everybody involved. Well, you know, we need to make sure we include this. This might be confusing, and I think by the time it was all said and done, it's one of those few things that was better after it ran through a committee than uh, it was before it started. And, uh, again, all the credit for that, I think, goes to Jeff's original writings and then the three of us being able to to collaborate constructively around it. Jeff, when do you do your best writing? I know from my own experiences it's the most random thing. You know, sometimes it's on a Saturday morning when nobody's around the office or at home. Sometimes it's at the end of the day. How about for you? When do you you get the ideas and flow going? Well, knowing that I still had some real work to do, uh, I would usually just set aside a day. I mean, back in time when I was president of ASGCA, I just set one day a week to ASGCA business, and basically I would come to the desk at you know 8 a.m. or whatever, and uh, after my trendy coffee, and start writing. 
And how about you, Nathan? I typically uh, write at night. You know, once everybody's, the, my wife and the kids are asleep, I would stay up for another hour or two and, and write. I, I always found that you hear about writer's block, but if I, if I knew that every two days from, you know, this time to this time I was going to sit down and write, I would start kind of looking forward to it. And I, I just found, for me, that worked better than just random times throughout the day. Every month, you know, for 14 years, I had that panic attack about three days before deadline, you know. <laughs> what am I going to write about this month, you know? I mean, what kind of ideas would run around in your head? But, uh, you know, sometimes someone would make an offhand comment on a project or whatever, and that that would turn out to be the inspiration, you know, that I needed. Um, so, yeah, writer's block is the thing. And, you know, don't ask me how I know that. I, I can remember to that point when I was writing the lip outs column for a, a few different publications years ago, like Jeff said, I, I would get a phone call at three in the afternoon and they would say, don't, don't forget, you have to fax us the story by midnight. You know, this was back before the internet. And so you would fax it to them. They would literally sit down and retype it and then print it and make plates. I mean, that was back in the, in the old printing days. So it's a little easier now, but I do, I do know that, uh, that familiar phone call at the last minute, and you've forgotten to uh, sit down and start writing anything. Maybe that's why I write better at night. How old are you? Uh, closing in on 50. All right. Well, I can tell you in the next 10 years or so that writing at night will probably, you know, go to mean 7 to 9, and then you'll be done. <laughs> I may have experienced writer's block once or twice just today. <laughs> it's it's such a difficult thing for people that uh, are listening to this that maybe don't have an opportunity to write as much. But the book is awesome. There's there's so many great things in it. And I one of the things that you know, I really found when I when I read the book is it's really for anybody that works in the industry or makes decisions at a golf course and this applies to golf courses at every level. But Jeff, why is the word committee included in the title? You know, we debated that a long time because you are right. This is really you know, aimed at anybody, city council or parks district or superintendents or pros. Um, the working title was Greens Committee Guide to Golf Course Architecture, only because it was sort of alliterative, kind of rolled off the tongue, maybe a little too long. So uh, in the end, we figured that even though we used the word committee, that, you know, anybody in the golf industry would intuitively understand there was, you know, anybody in charge or care of changing their golf course or upgrading it or what have you. Nathan, when this book was completed, what were your initial impressions, and how big of a market do you think there is for something like this book? Oh, I think, especially given what we've seen during the pandemic, you know, with the with the increase in play, I mean, all of my clients have seen twenty to forty percent increases in, in rounds of golf. Not only does that give them a little more cash flow to to look at projects that maybe they've tabled for the last few years, but I think. As Forrest Richardson alluded to in a podcast or an interview I heard a few weeks ago, it's really going to open the door to a lot of work in the next year or two because of this increased traffic. So you're going to have tees in other areas that have had a lot more traffic than they had in, in recent years. And so this book, the timing, even though I think it actually is uh, because the pandemic got out a little later than we originally wanted to, I think the timing works out perfectly for these people, these golf course owners and greens committees and superintendents and the like who maybe have some ideas and have some thoughts, they can grab a copy of this book from Amazon, uh, have it a couple of days, sit down, peruse it, and then they can reach out to an ASGCA architect and get the ball rolling. 
a lot of phrases are used in the book multiple times, and it, I noticed the phrase low play course and heavy play course in there. There's certainly a lot of courses this year that went from low play courses to heavy play courses. Nathan, you just touched on this, but has this surge affected long-term course renovation and enhancement decisions? I think that you're going to see a lot of courses, uh, and this is anecdotal from my own experience, but a lot of courses who, again, have kind of tabled things in recent years, and they're starting to call back and say, look, remember that project we talked about a couple of years ago? Well, now we're ready to do it. And it's either because they've had the increase in play and that's brought some more cash flow into their operation, or they've had uh, you know, a little more wear and tear on things that they've kind of been trying to put off. And now, because all of a sudden their play's up so much, they really can't put it off anymore. So, Yeah, Guy, you know, when we were writing that, uh, again, with the broad section of the committee, I mean, from like a Greg Muirhead who might do almost nothing but, you know, high-end private courses with 12,000 rounds, um, whereas I do a lot of my work in the public sector. And, you know, there's just no question that, uh, you know, low play gives you a little bit more freedom. Uh, so uh, we just, you know, just want people to understand that uh, every design is unique uh, and you know, you can do a lot more, or you have to think of things a little differently if you have heavy play, a lot more if you do low play. But the other thing is that, you know, over the many decades, how many private clubs, you know, built for real estate or whatever, have converted into public courses and gained some play? Or how many maintenance budgets have been cut over the years at all types of facilities? So I think the underlying tone is, you know, consider that things may change in the future. Uh, and it just kind of gives you some of the parameters of how your architect might be thinking. You know, you might be thinking you're going to hand mow your greens forever, but, you know, then something like this happens and you have to cut your staff. Uh, well, riding mowers look pretty attractive at that point. So uh, it's just such a dynamic thing. Golf courses, uh, sometimes they need to keep changing. Jeff, every chapter was fascinating, but I really found the one about greens fascinating. And have you made a lot of decisions uh, in, in the last decade or so where you know that going forward that the course is going to be riding its greens with mowing instead of walking, and has that affect the design of greens? Little incidents you know, kind of shape your, your attitude. And I can remember many years ago I lost a job in Atlanta to the, to the late Bob Cup, and the question they asked me in the interview is, you know, do you in, in anticipate hand mowing? And I said, you know, just what I just told you. I said I would probably design eight foot of collar between the edge of the green and the bunkers, uh, you know, knowing that some days you may want to ride that thing. And that cost me the job. I mean, they were just so darn sure uh, that they were going to be a high-end public course forever, or high-end private course forever. And I think it turned out I was right on that later on, but, uh, you know, didn't help me sell the job at the time. So, uh, but like I say, my, my thing is to, you know, plan for the worst. I can hope for the best and plan for the worst sometimes. I would think one of the big challenges and Nathan, you first on this one, is how do you get a committee member or, or a club president or somebody that's making that final decision understand the importance of ease of maintenance and also get them to understand the current labor situation in the golf industry? Well, I have found in, uh, in my experience that when you actually sit down and start talking about opportunity cost, then things start to crystallize a little bit because when you explain to them that it's let's take the labor you were spending on X and reallocate it to Y because we're able to make some changes to X, whatever that, whatever that is. And, for example, I've, I've been busy all summer and fall with bunker renovations. 
courses who have had some have been putting off projects and bunker renovation seems to have been the 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 renovation du jour for the last couple of months but by sitting down with the owners and they understand that okay we can invest money in these bunkers we can save a lot of maintenance on these bunkers going forward and it's not that they're necessarily cutting that money out of their budget but they're able to reallocate it toward greens or maybe another piece of equipment that they need or things like that that i think that's when people start to kind of realize what you're talking about well, I'd back that up 100%, Nathan. We did a bunker reduction at one of my old projects in Omaha, but we, as we went around to other courses, one superintendent, I would guess if you ran the numbers, bunker liners would save you 50000 a year. He put the number at over 100000 a year, and it's not so much uh, you know, just the cost of the normal maintenance. It's just when you have those washouts, if you don't have bunker liners, uh, you know, right. it could take five or six days to get back on mowing greens or, or doing whatever you normally do. Uh, so, I mean, that, those kind of numbers hit them in the face. I mean, 50 is enough. 100 is, you know, that's sort of a magic number when they see that they could, you know, save that much money. And like Nathan says, it's never that they, I don't know, I've seen too many maintenance budgets go down, but reallocation can certainly help their, their project. Jeff, do you ever get out? your crystal ball on these projects and project what labor is going to be like five to 10 years from now. Is that, has that become a consideration? Well, yeah, you know, you see all these news stories about the politicians wanting to uh, mandate a $15 an hour minimum wage. And from what I've seen in the golf industry, the market has sort of done that for them. Uh, I, I can't see it going down. Um, you know, over history, the twenties the and then the you know late nineties when money was flowing, you know, maintenance became less of a consideration. Uh, my old mentors, Killian and Nugent, and some of those generation of the 50s used to talk about the design triangle. I think Jeff Cornish used to mention it, you know, maintenance, playability, uh, and stra- aesthetics. And uh, that triangle, you know, leans maybe in when money's flowing too much to aesthetics. And now, for the you know most part, it's leaning back, you know, lopsided to the maintenance uh, just like it did after the Great you know, Depression, the stock market crash of 29, and, and a few other places. For the majority of time, golf has been just a tough business. And, um, you know, some people who got into it in, in the 90s uh, maybe got in at a wrong time uh, because they assume that's normal. I got into it in the 70s. And, again, this doesn't surprise me that, you know, the maintenance costs are going to, you know, drive design I think for the next you know, 50 years, to be honest. It's interesting you mentioned the design triangle because I take copious notes, and as I was reading the book, I made different notes, and I have in front of me the little design triangle I drew, and it's it's not the, the, the prettiest thing, but it's here in my note, notepad, and it leads to my next question, uh, Nathan. Practicality or strategy, what's driving more of the work that you and your colleagues are doing these days? Well, I don't think they're those two ideas can be mutually exclusive. I think they have to be a little bit of each and everything that you do. You you know, practicality leads toward long-term sustainability, but you have to have aesthetic because golfers don't want to go play something that's, uh, that's ugly. You know, they want to feel like what they're playing is what they see on, on TV or reading Golf Digest. And I think that the two are, are inextricably linked. And that's the that's the job of the golf course architect and the ASGCA members who, you know, spend so much time with that balancing act and ensuring that 
that the owners and the greens committees and, and everyone's happy when they're when it's all said and done. I, I think Jeff will agree to this point as well. At the end of the day, our uh, our main job is to exceed expectations, and if we have to lean a little one way or the other, project to project, you know, whatever the client's looking for uh, is what we have to deliver. Yep, uh, Nathan, well said. I do. of course I agree with that. Um, you, you, you know, that's the the hard part. Of course, some of the chapters deal with, you know, do you need a golf course architect? And you know, the answer in a, in a nutshell is there's a lot of things we can tell you about practicality. The one thing the architect probably has is that aesthetic eye, uh, and the broad based knowledge of the agronomy, you know, the aesthetics, the strategy, the practicality. Uh, and maybe a superintendent or a golf pro or club manager has one perspective, but we've all trained ourselves to consider things from every angle. And you know, every design is a compromise, or every design is a lean of the triangle one direction or the other for very specific reasons. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, the, a good golf course architect is going to give you the proper balance of all three. This is a tough question here, Jeff, but... Let's say a decision maker or a committee member comes up to the, the architect and says, hey, we want to speed up our greens at the course. How do you handle that directive? Well, one thing in the book is we did uh, Jerry Lemon's ASGCA had done a lot of research as to maximum slopes of the greens uh, at, at different uh, green speeds, and he allowed us graciously to, to put that into the book. Uh, Forrest Richardson actually contributed the chapter on pace of play and flow of play. Uh, and really, if you take those two chapters together, I mean, it's a pretty clear and direct indication. Uh, if your green speed is 13, whatever that slope is, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, you know, you might have to rip up two-thirds of your greens to get it to that speed and, and putt directly. So that's one of the best examples, I think, of the direct practical advice we're trying to give the, the club members in, in this book. Yeah, Nathan, how do you handle those conversations about uh, green slopes and, and speeds in your in your discussions? Well, most of my clients have all converted to ultradors by now. And, of course, the, the, there's hardly any bent left in the, in the Gulf states region, part of the southeast. You get over into Birmingham and that area, it's a little different. But, um, you know, closer to the coast, it's, it's all... Ultradorfs, and with the ultradorfs comes the need for speed, or at least what they think. And it's it's tough on superintendents and, and their staff to manage those expectations. And that that's the main thing that I try to explain to the client is, you know, the key for green speed is consistency. If they're all rolling ten and a half, and they're consistent, golfers are fine. But if some of them are 12 and some of them are 9, that's when you start having a disconnect because the, the greens need to be consistent from one to the other. So it's, for me, I try to explain that when you're having your club championship, if you want to really fast, you're having to stay damn. If you want to really fast, that's fine. But don't put that undue burden on the superintendent to have them lightning quick all year round because it's really not fair to, to him or her. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's really not fair to the turf. You know, there are a lot of challenges to what the both of you do. And one of the biggest ones, it might be the biggest, is trying to design something that appeals to everybody. But a lot of baby boomers are retiring now and playing a, a, a ton of golf. How much do you factor the decision or the the needs of senior golfers into your work? And what, what are some things that, Jeff, you've done to make the course more senior friendly in the last few years? Well, probably the biggest 
direct answer is adding more forward tees, you know, for the slower speed swingers down at 4,500 yards. And then that sort of generally moves the uh, seniors up a tee to the former, you know, ladies tees, as it were, at, you know, that are over 5,000. Um, you know, you get some resistance from the forward tees, but then after a year of everybody playing them, we're starting to see the data that, you know, once they get over the ego thing of playing, you know, a shorter distance, everybody loves it. I mean, who doesn't like hitting greens in regulation? Um, I know I do. I've moved up a tee. In fact, many years ago as a young man, I did a lot of work with Jim Colbert's group, had a lot of munis, and he had a partner who then was 65, you know, my age now. And he says, boy, I want to. I wish I was going to be around when you're 65. I bet you design a lot less steep slopes and a lot, a lot easier to, to walk around and, you know. He was right. I wish he was here. To, <laughs> I could tell him he was right. So uh, sometimes, you know, the ADA laws, which, you know, uh, formalize the need to get a, a 5% slope walkway from the cart path to the green, you know, they don't work just for, for the disabled. They, they work for senior golfers as well. And how about you, Nathan? A lot of retirees are moving uh, down to the, the, the Gulf states. Uh, how does that factor into your your decisions? Uh, it factors in. A, it's a, a a big part of that. It, it, as Jeff alluded to, you know, we just finished up a renovation of the refuge outside of uh, Jackson as part of a big new hotel complex that's being built there. And one of the things that we did was we went and added uh, forward tees, and and now that golf course plays from four thousand to a little over seven thousand. So there's as, as much or little. As uh, as you would care to have there, and in fact, at uh, we're just we're finishing up a bunker renovation right now at Tamaka Trails in Louisiana, which is at the Paragon Casino Resort, and the bunkers there were 20 years old. They were the faces were so steep that a lot of the older players had gotten to where they couldn't get in and out of some of the bunkers, and so that was another thing that we had to to look at as baby boomers continue to to get older and, and still are active in the game, you know, access, as Jeff alluded to, not only just up and down from greens and tees, but in and out of bunkers and, and other areas of the golf course. And then again, it's that balancing act. You know, you don't want to make everything flat and so that it has no aesthetic appeal, just like with green speeds. You know, if you if everything has to stamp at 13, then you really take a lot of the fun and movement out of your green. So it, it, it's a balancing act that we have to explain and a lot of that is what's behind this book. It's a little off-topic, Guy, but, uh, you know, one of the things I always like to say is we spend so much time focusing on the Pro Tour, you know, Bryson DeChambeau hitting at 340. Uh, those same distance reports by the USGA and RNA show that the average golfer's distance is going down. Uh, I do a lot of work with the national management companies, and so you, if you ask their uh, – Senior agronomist, what's your average green speed across, you know, two dozen or three dozen facilities? And it's still nine and a half in the U.S. is the average, near as I can tell. I mean, obviously it varies. And the whole discussion just, you know, really ramps around the pro tour that's never going to hit your course and, and a green speed that, you know, you read about. Uh, but it's just really not true. I mean, golf in America really hasn't hit that point. So, I always try to emphasize that the discussion ought to be, you know, towards the mid-level course that you are, if that's what you are, uh, rather than chasing some uh, mythical extreme. Uh, Jeff and Nathan, you guys and your colleagues are the experts 
but a lot of people think that they can do a DIY tea project. What are some of the risks of doing a DIY tea project? Nathan, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, the, from the DIY projects that I've seen, uh, they almost always cost more money when they're said and done, either from going back and fixing things, from things they didn't think about, uh, building teas where there's not existing sprinkler heads and there's no way to irrigate it, um, not having a, a, a shaper involved, you know, not making the teas big enough so that you can get get up there and turn a, a tea mower around on them, all kinds of things. And, uh, and again, it's not that there aren't things that superintendents aren't capable of doing, but you kind of get back into these opportunity costs. If you've got a superintendent who's in charge of adding 12 teas on your golf course, well, then there are other things on that 200 acres that he's not able to do. You know, even if you have a good assistant, a really good staff, he can't be in, he's already in five places at one time. Now you're asking him to be at 10 places at one time. And so that's when it's time to, to really bring in an expert, reduce your opportunity cost, and make sure you get it right the first time. I think in the book we point out that, you know, everything is designed. Uh, just a question of whether it's well designed in both concept and the details that Nathan mentions, you know, or it's no design is a decision to have poor design, really. Uh, the golf architect is still the one who understands all the little elements that go into that. And I think we also point out, and I can't forget, can't remember who contributed this line, but most of us, our renovation work comes from uh, a second attempt after the first attempt was try to be done in-house, and they realized what they got into was more than they could handle. So uh, if you're looking at renovating your course and you think uh, you don't need an architect, you don't need a contractor, uh, keep that in mind. Most people do not renovate in-house for the second project. <laughs> That's true. It wasn't that long ago, you know, four or five years ago, that we had a lot of discussion about water issues and a lot of turf removals were going on and some other projects were that were related to water, especially out in the West. Are water issues still driving long-term decisions that clubs are making uh, that they were making a few years ago? Or is that, is that gone away? Jeff? Well, it seems like the, the high profile cases have, have reduced and, and that might lull the industry into thinking it's not an issue, but I know the Georgia superintendents and a few others have been doing a lot of great work kind of under the radar about, you know, best management practices for water. And there's there's no doubt it it will still be the driving force in design. If not now, there's certainly more and more over the next 20 years. So it's something uh, that we do have to address. Yeah, the ASGCA has put out, a you know, the water book and already printed two volumes of it. So I don't think it's going anywhere, even though, as Jeff alluded to, sometimes it's not at the, in the headlines all the time. But there are a lot of factors there. I mean, just, A, the cost. You know, if, if you're trying to manage your cost, then you need to manage your water and you need to manage other things as well. But uh, and I don't, I don't see the, the issue going away anytime soon. We can't let you two get out of here without uh, talking about bunkers. <laughs> Jeff, what are some of the initial things you tell a head decision maker or committee member about bunkers when they bring that issue up to you? Well, yeah, they bring it up. They usually have some ideas of their own. I mean, I've done five or six bunker reduction projects on my own designs. Uh, and, you know, again, from the, how you thought about stuff in the 1990s, selling real estate, you know, getting awards, uh, those parameters are gone now. 
and they'll take me out to typically some huge bunker I designed, and, you know, the variety theory would say you need a few big bunkers out there to stand out, and they would show me that there's no, no ball marks here, no rake tracks, no footprints, and there haven't been, you know, for the 10 years the course has been open, so why do we really need this bunker? Um, the discussion always revolves around this bunker doesn't get enough action, and then in other places they say this bunker gets too much action, you know, like front right of the green. Uh, I'm not sure there's a standard definition of what just the right amount of action in a, in a bunker is, but um, uh, it, that's, that's where we're going. Uh, and, you know, Donald Ross wrote that you can over-bunker a golf course, and... Uh, I think we got to that point again, chasing awards in the 1990s, you know, right up to maybe 2006. Um, and I haven't found it hard to downscale the bunkers. Uh, again, makes the greens the primary visual target of the hole. Uh, and replacing the bunkers with various grass hazards. Uh, again, I've cut my standard plug you know, number from 100,000 to 50,000 or 60,000 square foot of bunkers, and I don't think my designs have suffered at all. Nathan, you got a similar experience? I, I will wager. Yeah, no, I, I 110. percent When I got in, first got into the business, I was actually working for a guy who was a certified golf course superintendent. So I kind of cut my teeth on making bunkers easy to maintain, and then as well as my with my background with the management of golf courses, you know, looking for ways to still provide that aesthetic but not have big, huge deep-faced bunkers that, that are, uh, are a big maintenance issue. And so when I got further into design, that played a, a big part in my design philosophy. And it just, as, uh, as Jeff just mentioned about the fifty to 60,000 number, I'll go back to this Tamaka Trails project we're wrapping up right now. That golf course is 20 years old, originally a Steve Spires design. Awesome golf course, great piece of property. Bunkers looked awesome. Uh, you know, when the course first opened, but over the years and as maintenance issues and, and budgets, you know, ebbed and flowed and, and things changed. When we went in, one of the one of the issues that they brought to me was we have to reduce the size uh, or overall square feet, and we went from 148,000 square feet to 56,000, and that's kind of right in that sweet spot that Jeff alluded to. On a funny note. Uh, Earlier this year, finished a, I finished a master plan for a public golf course in North Louisiana that will have no bunkers, just really cool shaping and collection areas and fall-offs and shelves and, and things, so it's still a challenge and it's aesthetically appealing, but, but no bunkers. And when we uh, put that out on social media, my friend uh, Jerry Lemons from Better Billy Bunker just sent me a text and it just said, don't like this, with a smiley face emoji on it. So. <laughs> Jerry's company sponsors the podcast, so uh, I'm sure he'll get a chuckle out of hearing hearing that story on here. He, he's good about those things. Uh, a few other things here with uh, bunkers. Jeff, are we seeing, or are you getting asked to do bunkers as extreme? Are we seeing some softening of them, especially around bunker faces? Uh, what are some trends with that right now, and how do you handle that discussion with, with a committee member or decision maker? Well, throughout my career, I've always gone back after courses opened, you know, and asked the superintendent, give me the five ways I killed you with design. And, yeah, usually bunkers that require, you know, you know hand maintenance a lot, that, that's certainly at the top of the list. Um, but having worked mostly in the public sector and having put myself through college working at a golf course, I, I may have been more uh, 
in tune with the superintendent side of things, just like Nathan is. So, you know, I go out and I measure stuff. Um, if a slope washes, you know, I put the, you know, the digital level on it and say, okay, well, we can't go that steep with this particular sand. If they're having trouble mowing around the outside, you know, I go find their mowers, see what the ma uh, minimum turning radius is, and then we start designing the bunker noses to that, if we can. Some superintendents actually like, a, if they got a forward and back function, they actually just like going down once and, and pulling back out. So uh, the, the, the bunker liners have definitely affected design. I mean, obviously you want to make them smaller. Uh, used to be you'd have to do a sand lobe, you know, 20 foot wide to get the sand pro around it. Now, if, if you are hand raking, uh, which a lot do with those uh, cloth liners in particular, not so much with better billy bunker, you know, if they're going to use a cloth liner, then you want less sand and more nose. So uh, technology has always affected design, whether it's the PVC drain pipes or, you know, earth moving technology, irrigation, and now the, the uh, technology of bunker liners. And there's, what, 20 to choose from. I think Jan Beljan made a list of them. Uh, and then, you know, you tune that bunker to the design for the betterment of the superintendent. Nathan, have you noticed an increased interest in golf course architecture from committee members and other decision makers at golf facilities? I remember last year I was at the old golf shop at Pinehurst talking to the owner, and he said he couldn't keep golf course architecture books in stock fast enough. Is that something you've noticed over the last decade or so, that more of these people that this book is aimed for are taking an interest in architecture? You know, I think you've always had you know, what what you would refer to as the armchair golf course architect or the, the architecture fan, you know, the person who's who's really into it. I think that's great. I mean, I get, and Jeff probably does too, I get calls and emails from people all the time with uh, questions about things or, you know, or college age students who are you know, interested, how do they get into the business and that type of thing. And so I think that's always, that interest is always going to be there. And then when you look at some of these websites that are out there, you, you start like Golf Club Atlas and these others that you start to notice almost a schism between the, the more, I guess you would call them the more woke set who kind of, they want to go one direction and anything that's not like that is bad. And you have another set who just kind of appreciates all architecture. And, and I don't know that, that either one's right or wrong. I just think it's interesting that you kind of see this uh, uh, kind of a split, I guess, between the two uh, schools of thought of which way golf course design should go. But like anything else, it's, it's always dictated by the market, and the market's dictated by the owner and the, and the end user. So, you know, we have to be able to adapt and, and go whichever, whichever way that we need to go. But I don't think you'll ever see a lack of interest in design uh, by, the, by the public at large. Oh, sorry. Golfers, you know, if, if they hit a ball in a bunker, you know, it's, the question is, why did you put that bunker there? <laughs> um, most interest in architecture gets really up close and personal. As Ed C. used to say, don't ask a golfer how he likes your course, ask what he shot. And uh, that pretty well gives you the answer. I always like to put at least one bunker that makes people mad just to keep them on their toes. That's right. I call it a conversation piece. you got to have a story to tell in the bar afterwards, right? So <laughs> I guess if you're going to do a, a bunker, you may as well get one of them out there that's, you know, Pete Dye 20 feet deep or whatever. They may not like it, but they will talk about it. <laughs> Jeff, what are some ways 
a real architect handles an armchair architect. Any best man management practices there for the, the, the future golf course architects listening to this? Oh, well, first of all, you have to control your temper and not say what the first thing that comes to your mind is. That's my biggest issue. I don't know about you, Nathan. Um, but, but really, this whole, I think, idea of this book is to, you know, dispel unreasonable expectations. I mean, uh, I will say that whenever I've had guys come out and say we should try this or tr try that, and that includes some of the tour pros I've worked with, um, yeah, they just aren't practical at all, and uh, or they're not a good idea for some reason or another. Uh, so uh, I, just a plain civil discussion, and like I say, we hope everyone buys this book and at least gets a you know a good sense of why things are done the way they are. I mean, deep down, everybody thinks they're a better golf course architect than the guy who's designed 50 or 60 courses, uh, but there's a reason we do things the way we do them. I, I agree. I've, I've never... So far, I've been fortunate, I guess, that I've never had to uh, walk away from somebody before it it came to blows. But uh, there are every project, well, not every project, but every once in a while, you'll come across a project with whether it's a green committee member or an owner or something, and they just feel like you know this is the way they want it done, and it takes a lot of conversation and a lot of uh, you know, managing of expectations to explain why, and that's why you know we say. This book should be mandatory reading. If any golf course out there, if you're a superintendent or an owner or a green committee member within earshot of this podcast and you think there might be a possibility that you'll be doing some work at your golf course in the next 12 to 18 months, go to Amazon, order enough copies for your greens committee, and give them to everybody and let them be reading this over the winter so that when you start to make these decisions, their expectations will, will be more realistic going into it. Jeff, let's say somebody reads the book and really enjoys it, and I can't imagine that someone uh, who reads this book is not going to enjoy it. Where can they go after the book to continue their education about golf course architecture? Well, ASGCA as a group uh, you know, has a lot of uh, publications. Uh, Nathan mentioned the water resource books. I think they have a lot of other pamphlets. Most of them are, are for free. Um, yeah, yeah, so really the, the gist of this is that the ASGCA or other qualified architect is, is the right one to help you make those decisions. I mean, this is really not a book to help you be an architect. It's a book to help you understand how your architect is thinking and just how much goes into even seemingly simple decisions. So, uh, like I say, the, the good thing about this book is it's not necessarily designed to be read cover to cover. Again, the questions I've always gotten from those in charge of golf courses tend to be fairly pointed. I mean, no one cares where Alistair McKenzie got his design inspiration from. You know, they want to know how big a tee should be or, you know, how do you implement a forward tee program or how big does a green need to be, you know, for the approach shot or the, for spreading the cup around. Very pointed and specific questions. So, in fact, I'd actually imagine... Some people would buy this book and just turn to one chapter, you know, chapter 17 first, because that's the question they had. Um, and that's kind of the idea of the format, 50 separate topics, almost 60, I think, um, covering something very specific. You could look in the table of contents and say, yes, that's the information I need to know. Okay, so some last things here. Uh, Nathan, you do some writing away from golf when you have the free time. Are you at liberty to discuss that at this point and tell our listeners about it oh well sure i have a my first thriller called 
Vincent Vino. It's been out for a few months now and um, <clears throat> been getting some really good feedback from uh, other writers and, and people who've, who've bought the book and, and read it. So that's been great. And again, it's <clears throat> there are a few mentions of golf in there, but it is not a golf book. You know, if you if you'd like a good thriller with some uh, government espionage and and good old fashioned uh, spy games, that's uh, that's a good read. And uh, working on another one called Recalled. Uh, in fact, we have the the first chapter of that book is uh, for free at HankHarman.com. If anybody wants to read that first chapter, um, but that's uh, that's the second book kind of in that series, or second or third book, actually, in, the, in that series. But the great thing about it is, if you want to get a copy of Vincent Vino, it's on Amazon. So while you're there, you just go over and you click on the ASGCA book, put them both in your basket, and you can have them in time for Christmas. Nathan, you're a marketing genius. Yes, he is. <laughs> Nathan, have you ever thought about writing a uh, fictitious account of being a golf course architect based on nonfiction experiences um sort of yes i i did i actually had an idea for a book a few years ago uh called short grass tall tales in which i was going to solicit crazy stories from golf course superintendents and, and golf professionals because we all have crazy stories from work experiences and then if they wanted to change the names to protect the innocent we would do that and kind of put those into a uh, into a book with maybe 40 or 50 stories and then use the proceeds to benefit some type of foundation or something. I always thought that would be interesting. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll fire that idea back up next year. Jeff, do you have any novels in the works? Yeah. Uh, no, I am. Nathan is a real renaissance man, and uh, I'm pretty much just a golf course architect. So, No trendy coffee no, shop blog or something? Uh, you know, I do have a blog that I put on my website, and from time to time I'll put some of the you know deep thoughts architectural philosophy on there just to have new content uh but no nothing much writing away from golf you know i'm, I'm not much of a renaissance man i'm more like a, a dog with uh, who sees too many squirrels <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know how to follow that up well, but know, i do have to say Nathan, all you need to do is go to the next asgca meeting whenever we have that of course with covid uh, you know, the best part about those meetings is sitting around with architects, and I hate to say in the bar, but in the bar. And, uh, you know, that's where we just sort of trade those stories. And, uh, unfortunately, Jay Morris has passed away a few years ago. Bob Cup, those two guys told more of the great stories than ever. Whenever a young new member, and they say, what do I do to learn about ASGCA? I used to say, just go talk to one of those old members and listen to the right. stories about the old days. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing here, Jeff is a big hockey fan. How excited are you about the upcoming Dallas Stars season? Well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. They had a great season last year, falling just short of the Stanley Cup. But, you know, the COVID thing, I'm still paying monthly for the for next year's season tickets. I'm just not sure the season's, you know, going to start or uh, what kind of restrictions uh, there be? You know, whether my full season tickets will be split in fourths because they only have 25% capacity. I, I just don't know. Uh, so it's mixed reaction right now. But uh, I'm one of those weird duck Texans who uh, grew up in Chicago, and you know, I'm a hockey fan instead of a Cowboys fan. So uh, most people don't get me at all. That's for sure. <laughs> 
And we'll just uh, stay away from Nathan's sporting passions. It hasn't been the best of the year years for yeah, Mississippi not, State Bulldogs and Dallas Cowboys. Let's let's not talk about football right now. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate both of you joining us. Uh, congrats again on getting this book done. Again, it's it's recommended to everybody who works in the industry, no matter what your role is. Get your hands on this. You'll you'll learn something from it, and the people who make the decisions at your golf course will certainly learn something from it. So thanks again, and have a good winter, both of you. You too. Have a great holiday. All right, guys. Thank you.